One and all, and welcome to the very first ever episode in 2009 of Say Hello to My Little Friend. I am your host, Glenn Peoples, welcoming you once more. So let's get things going for the new year. This episode is episode number 23, and it is called Imagine There's No Heaven. Now, you know what? I really hate the fact that a lot of people think that John Lennon's song, Imagine, that you've just heard, is beautiful. It's not beautiful. It's horrible. No possessions, no religion, nothing worth killing or dying for. Now, don't get me wrong. Killing and dying are bad, but that's not the point. There's nothing worth killing or dying for. The whole song is a hymn in praise of atheistic communism. And I'm not the only one to notice that, Christian or not. However, in one line of the song, the first line, the line that you've just heard, Lennon actually meant to express godlessness by saying, Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, and above us only sky. He thought that by saying this he was asking us to imagine that there's no God and no life after death. But he was fundamentally wrong in at least two ways. Firstly, he was wrong because there is a God and there is a life after death. But secondly, and this is the point of today's episode, he was wrong to think that these lyrics actually do deny either the existence of God or the reality of life after death. I think it's a bit like saying, imagine there's no Santa Claus, and then being so gullible as to think that you've just denied that there is any Christmas. You see immediately how silly and gullible that is, right? Well, I think that unfortunately, and not obviously in some cases, but unfortunately, some rather theologically unreflective Christians are gullible in just the same way. In their mind, to express disbelief in their going to a place called heaven when you die is tantamount to theological liberalism, or perhaps even unbelief denying the very idea of eternal life at all, robbing us of hope and effectively saying that there may as well be no God because our existence is rapidly drawing to a permanent end. I think that's simplistic and wrong, and today I hope to go some way towards explaining why. But today's episode is not all negative, uh, complaining about silly things that people say. I also want to say a thing or two about the kind of hope that we should be talking about if we stop talking about going to heaven. So, let's get started. Because this episode is really about biblical theology, let's start with the Bible. Let's start with what I've called biblical visions of heaven. 
With such a firmly entrenched and widespread belief among Christians that when you die you go to heaven, or, and this is really the point here, that we will live forever in heaven, you'd expect there to be plenty of biblical examples when this is taught. If this is what you believe, then here's an exercise that I want you to take part in. It won't take long. You might find it instructive. Pause this podcast after you've heard the instructions. Press pause on whatever you use to play this podcast, and then open your Bible. Find just three clear statements that when you die, you go to a place called heaven, and that you will live forever there in a place called heaven. Now please, don't choose the verses that you personally believe are referring to going to heaven or living forever in heaven. Just choose verses that actually state this. And yes, I'm being specific, they must include the word heaven. Don't count references to the kingdom of heaven, or the synonymous term kingdom of God, and I'll explain why a bit later on in this episode. Just see how many references you can find like this to heaven. Use an electronic Bible, if you like, and search for every reference to heaven, and just find three like this. So if you're going to take part in this little exercise, please just press pause now and do it. Okay, all done? Were you surprised? Did you expect to have a completely empty list? The Bible never says anything directly about us going to a place called heaven when we die, and it never says anything about us living forever in a place called heaven. In issues where there is disagreement, we need to be careful to distinguish between opinion or inferences, things that are open to legitimate dispute, and brute facts that all sides must accept and over which there is no legitimate dispute. What I have just said about the Bible in heaven is a fact. It's black and white, regardless of your theology. No matter what your personal theological convictions about what happens when we die, or about our eternal state, you have no choice but to accept the fact that the Bible doesn't say those two things, that we will go to a place called heaven when we die, and that we will live there forever. It does not say those things. You can't dispute that. However, what you make of this fact is up to you. So if the Bible doesn't say these things about heaven, then what does it say when it uses the word heaven? Now, I don't have a long time to discuss this, so I'll try to be brief and concise. The Bible uses that word heaven in three major ways. Firstly, number one, it uses the word to refer to the sky. Literally what you see when you look up. Uh, Genesis 1.1 The first biblical reference to to heaven is the very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. End quote. God then makes lights in the heavens, the stars, the moon, the sun, and he makes things that live on the earth, plants, animals, and humans. The heavens simply means the sky. This is the normal meaning of the biblical terms Hashemayim, which is the heavens, or Shamayim, just heavens. In the Hebrew Old Testament, that is, or Uranos in the Greek New Testament. In the Hebrew Scripture, you'll read that the birds fly in the heavens. It just means up there. When you look up, you see the place where the birds fly. 
when the psalmist in Psalm 8 praises God for your heavens, he describes the moon and the stars as being there. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, verse 10, we read of Israel, and I quote, The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. Okay. This just means the stars in the sky. When Jesus was praying a blessing over the loaves and fishes, in, in the, the miracle of the loaves and fishes, he, quote, looked up to heaven. That's in Luke nine fifteen. When the disciples saw Jesus ascend up to heaven at the ascension in Luke 24, he was eventually hidden from their sight by a cloud. That's mentioned in Acts 1, 9. So they weren't saying he went into, like a, another dimension or something called heaven. That just meant he went up into the sky. The phrase heaven and earth, or the heavens and the earth, are common in both the Old and the New Testaments, and as a couple they refer to the whole natural creation. Although sometimes the sea is separately mentioned as well, but let's not complicate things just now. So that's the first meaning of heaven, or the heavens. It's just the sky, or space, or whatever it is you see when you physically look up. Secondly, it can refer to the place where God is, up and out there. Now this is a bit of a strange one. If heaven is the sky, then why does the Bible talk about God being in heaven? While it's common in the Old Testament to see God referred to as the God of heaven and earth, sometimes he's just called the God of heaven, or literally God of the skies. Psalm 136 closes with, Give thanks to the God of heaven, his love endures forever. That's just an isolated example. There are plenty of them. There are a number of instances where God is said to be in heaven. And again, I don't want to bore you with examples. So here are just two. Uh, Psalm 33, verses 13 to 14, uh, 14, read as follows. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Or a more familiar one to us, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, the example from the Psalms is pretty explicit. God is in the sky, so when he looks down from the sky, he, quite naturally, from that vantage point, can see us all down here. Now, we know that that's nonsense, right? Now, because this isn't quite the topic of this episode, I won't dwell on it long. But I have to say, and I noticed this uh, with the so-called angry atheistic critiques of Christianity that you find on the internet, I am constantly irritated by this lingering idea that we are smart and the ancients were just idiots. They had eyes, people. They could look up and see the sky, and they knew full well that God is not sitting on a floating throne up there. Don't treat them like complete morons. Even if they were wrong, they were not that. When King Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple, he frankly admitted to God in Second Chronicles 6.18, and I quote, he's talking about the house that he's built, namely the temple. He says, But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? End quote. Of course they realize full well that God isn't in the sky, and that as a non-physical being he could not be so. 
We say things that we don't literally mean all the time, even though we, like many of the ancients, do not believe that the earth is flat. We quite happily talk about the ends of the earth because to express the idea that we want to express, that language just works. We talk about having thoughts and feelings in our heart, but that's not true. Our heart is an organ that pumps blood and doesn't think anything. Likewise, God isn't actually in the sky. After all, as Solomon said, the heavens cannot contain anything like God. But to speak of God in this way expresses some things about Him. He is out there. He's higher, greater than us. He can see all things and so forth. So this is the second use of the word heaven, and I don't think it's appropriate to take it entirely literally. Secondly, I really put that as 1b. Maybe it's two. But thirdly, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. This is the third use of the word heaven that I want to talk about in the Bible. When it comes to talk about our destiny, this third use of the word heaven is probably the most important. The term kingdom of heaven does not appear in the Old Testament at all. Neither, for that matter, does the synonymous term kingdom of God. The term kingdom of heaven only appears in the Gospels in the words of Jesus. The Gospel writers, however, were quite happy to use the term kingdom of God as synonymous. They didn't mind which phrase was used. They considered it to be the same idea. And that term, kingdom of God, does appear elsewhere in the New Testament, although it's still mostly in the Gospels. The fact that the Gospel writers equated the two shows that for them the term heaven in the phrase kingdom of heaven did not mean a kingdom that is located in a certain place much less in the sky but the kingdom of a particular person namely God in Matthew 12 Jesus said that the kingdom of God has come likewise in Matthew 4 Jesus told people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand now I think that's just the same idea being expressed in different places in the New Testament the kingdom of heaven is right here and now. There's no other place called the kingdom of heaven. It's here. It's with us. Now, there's no one defining statement in the New Testament about what the kingdom of heaven is. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I'm just trying to sum up different ways the Bible uses the term. So I'll be quite summary in my approach. I'll sum it up by saying that the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is the rule of God both now and forever, and rather than going to heaven, the New Testament calls us to enter the kingdom of heaven, to become God's subjects. Now, I spent longer than I really wanted to do talking about this. I'm just trying to establish some terms. So I want to move on, but please do this. Check out for yourself the way the Bible uses the term kingdom of heaven, just for the sake of noting that it doesn't refer to a place called heaven where we go after we die. That's just not how that phrase is used. So as a prelude to what I'm going to say next, I just want to move away from the biblical data and make a historical comment. So I'm going to make some comments on what I will call Platonism, to change tack slightly. Platonism refers to Greek thought influenced by the ancient philosopher Plato. In the world into which the gospel first came, Platonism was highly influential and it continued to be so in the centuries that followed. For example, a cluster of ideas that we now call Gnosticism 
that arose mainly in the second century was a combination of Christianity, Platonism, and some aspects of Eastern religion. Platonism made its mark on this movement, at least partly in its view of the value of the material world. Gnostics held the physical world and the physical human body in contempt, believing that both were inherently corrupt and in some way unredeemable. Um, in fact, they taught that there was more than one God. There was the God, the, the really good God, the God that we should worship, revealed in the person of Jesus, and then there was this lesser God um, who wasn't morally good, who created the physical universe. But I won't dwell on that. They believed that ultimate redemption meant escape from the body and from the physical world, existing eternally as a pure spirit in communion with God. Now, Orthodox Christianity rejected Gnosticism because of the obvious way that it conflicted with Christian doctrine. For example, the resurrection of the dead. But Platonism and the Greek philosophical background of many converts to Christianity still had some influence on the shape of Christian thought in a number of ways. And I suggest to you, and I'm certainly not alone, that the vision of life after death and of heaven are among the casualties here. Many Christians across the centuries have joined hands with the Platonists and with the Gnostics, I think, in belittling God's physical creation and longing to escape it, even if they wouldn't put it quite so bluntly as that. I'm going to illustrate this by, and this is something that N.T. Wright does in a fairly recent book called Surprised by Hope, uh, which I recommend, by the way. That one of the ways that Christians have done this is in the worship that the Church has taken part in. I think that our worship is in dire need of reform in at least one specific way. We've let some bad theology slip into our songs because we either believed bad theology, so we didn't mind, or we thought it sounded nice, so we went along with it, maybe we were charismatics, or we simply didn't think about what we were singing. Maybe, as I say, maybe we've, we've spent a lot of time in charismatic churches, as I have in the past. In the, song, sorry, in the songs that the church has been singing for years that look forward to our future life, we have in many cases not spoken in the terms that Scripture speaks. And we have elevated beliefs about heaven that are not biblical, and we have sacrificed the central theme of the biblical hope of eternal life. Here are some examples. This one, the first one, is not only a widely loved hymn, it is also a favorite for funerals. It was the song of choice, I believe, at the funeral of Mother Teresa. It's called Abide With Me. You probably know it. It was written by a man who knew that he was dying of tuberculosis. Here's the point where the song reaches fever pitch, the point of entering eternity, as the author of the song looked forward to his own life with God. And I quote, Heaven's morning dawns, and earth's vain shadows flee. End quote. What is the eternal state called here? There's only one reference to our eternal life with Christ. What's it called here? He calls it heaven. There's nothing else mentioned about future, just heaven. What is this earth, this physical creation? Vain shadows. Nothing of any importance and nothing 
that will last. Certainly nothing that has any, any part in our future beyond this life. I'm disappointed by that because I really like the song in a bunch of other ways, but it's like the fly in the ointment right there. As it is still the Christian, Christian Christmas season, early January still, this next example seems particularly appropriate from my least favorite Christmas carol, Away in a Manger. And I quote, Bless all the dear children in thy tender care, and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. End quote. Nothing else is referred to at all but heaven. No resurrection of the dead, just heaven. That's it. That's all we need to know. God's going to make us fit for heaven so that we can go and live with him there. Now you might think I'm being harsh. After all, this song is written for children, so it doesn't have to have to be very precise. Firstly, most of the people who sing this song aren't children. But secondly, if it were written for children, that makes it even worse. As the book of Proverbs urges us, bring up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is older he will not depart from it. The message for children is that our future with Jesus is in a place called heaven, and that's all we need to know. Now the song is bad for other reasons, too. Firstly, it presents an almost docetic version of Jesus. He wasn't quite human. Uh, quoting from the song, The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. End quote. Yeah, right. Of course not. I bet he never even had a dirty nappy. nappy. That's a diaper, my American friends. I was... I stuttered there because I said napper, which is a cross between nappy and diaper. Secondly, however, how about this? I love thee, Lord Jesus. Look down from the sky. Great. You know, let's reinforce the very worst stereotypes about Christians and their ignorant views about science. Getting back on track, I found some other songs. I found a couple just flicking through the Salvation Army songbook, which I randomly picked up off a bookshelf. A song by Thomas Rawson Taylor says, I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. Earth is a desert drear. Heaven is my home. Uh, a chorus by Margaret Chalmers Wilson, who says, We know there's a bright and glorious land away in the heavens high, where all the redeemed shall with Jesus dwell. Will you be there, and I? Here's one from Isaac Watts, a hymn based on Psalm 24, where he says, but there's a brighter world on high, thy palace, Lord, above the sky. Who shall ascend that blessed abode, and dwell so near his Maker God? He that abhors and fears to sin, whose heart is pure, whose hands are clean, him shall the, the Lord the Saviour bless, and clothe his soul with righteousness. These are the men, the pious race, that seek the God of Jacob's face. These shall enjoy the blissful sight, and dwell in everlasting light. Now, I don't doubt for a moment that if you put him on the spot and asked him, Mr. Watts would have affirmed the doctrine of the resurrection. But look how this is overshadowed here. It's not even mentioned. There is a world high above the sky, above the clouds where the righteous will go, and experience everlasting light. And it's not even a temporary state before the resurrection in this song. If you didn't know any better, you'd think this is about an eternal place up there without end or interruption where we go to live forever as soon as our bodies die. What room is there for the resurrection in that? Mr. Watts 
unfortunately give this impression frequently. Later on in the same song, he says, speaking about the risen Jesus, after he physically rose from the dead, he says, Raised from the dead, he goes before, he opens heaven's eternal door, to give his saints a blessed abode near to their Redeemer and their God. Don't miss what's going on here. Jesus rose from the dead, then gained entrance to heaven, so that we too could go to this place. Never mind any thought that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, so that we too could rise bodily from the dead. Forget that. Let's talk about going up to this heavenly place forever. Of all the hymns and worship songs that you know, that talk about our future hope after death, can you think of one, without looking it up to check, that specifically mentions our resurrection? If you can, I'm surprised. Maybe you can, but I'm surprised. How about two songs like that? Again, don't look them up, don't cheat. I doubt it. If you can, I'm surprised. John Wesley got close to perfection with this, and I quote, Resting in this glorious hope to be at last restored, Yield we now our bodies up to earthquake, plague, or sword, Listening for the call divine, the latest trumpet of the seven. Soon our soul and dust shall join, Here it comes, and both fly up to heaven. So close, but so far. He got close to talking about the resurrection, but then all of a sudden our bodies are raised just so that they, be, they can be taken away to heaven. At times it is much worse, unfortunately, as Wesley elsewhere calls us to worship by singing, It stands securely high, indissolubly sure. Our glorious mansion in the sky shall evermore endure. In the sky? Oh, were we entered there to perfect heaven restored? Oh, were we caught all caught up to share the triumph of our Lord? For this in faith we call, for this we weep and pray. Oh, might the tabernacle fall! Oh, might me, oh, might we escape away? Full of immortal hope, we urge the restless strife and hasten to be swallowed up of everlasting life. The tabernacle. Wesley refers to as our human body. Now I realize that he's using some biblical language here. He's talking about the eternal mansion, referring to our present state as a tabernacle. That's biblical language. But look at the message that Wesley is giving us. Look at the part that he adds to this biblical language. The mansion is a place where we will all live eternally after we die, a place in the sky, and we should weep and pray to die so that we can escape this tabernacle and this world as soon as possible to get there. If you don't see what's wrong with this, then I'm glad you're listening today. I'll be right back in a moment. Greetings, world, and welcome to the Gorilla Radio Show. The informal and sometimes inappropriate philosophy talk show. Bringing philosophy to the masses. Check out our website at www.gorillaradioshow.com for monthly episodes, exciting programming, and prizes. The Gorilla Radio Show. The only place where laughter and independent thought are the two highest goods. Okay, we're back. Now, incidentally, just occurred to me, I should probably mention this, you may notice that I sound a bit nasally today. It is the middle of summer here in New Zealand, and... In recent years, I've been getting quite a bit of hay fever, so you can you can tell that I sound quite nasally and stuffed up in the nose. So that's the reason for that. But we're back. Where are we thus far? Well, 
I've looked at the way the Bible uses the term heaven, and we've looked at the way Christians have portrayed heaven and our future hope in their worship. So now, let's stop being so critical, and let's look at what the Bible does say about redemption. So redemption, biblical style. To complete my critique of that theology that I've just been describing, and for the sake of contrast with the, re- the view of redemption and eternal life that we've just, ex- just seen expressed in Christian theology over the years, let's look at the way the Bible describes eternal life. As part of the historic Christian faith, all Christians affirm the resurrection of the dead because it is biblical and has therefore been taught from the beginning. But our talk of heaven has unfortunately overshadowed this biblical doctrine. If you approach the Bible with this background, the one that I've been criticizing, hoping hoping to find a clear doctrine of eternal life in heaven after death, maybe the occasional reference to the resurrection of the body awkwardly set in the midst of this heaven talk, then prepare to enter the twilight zone. I'm going to start with Matthew 5. Matthew 5. We're familiar with the so-called Beatitudes. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn will be comforted. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. The merciful will receive mercy. The pure in heart will see God. The peacemakers will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake will have the kingdom of heaven. Those who are reviled and persecuted because of Jesus should rejoice, because great is is, i.e. present tense right now, great is their reward in heaven. Now this leaves open the question of whether they will go to heaven to get that reward, or whether that reward will come to them from heaven. I happen to believe the latter. But here's what I want you to see in the Beatitudes. It's the one that I haven't mentioned yet. You know what it is? Couched in the midst of all this is verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the earth. The same passage that promises people that they can receive the kingdom of heaven also says that we may inherit the earth. How many sermons how many sermons have you heard on this verse about inheriting the earth? I've heard none, and I've been attending churches for thirty three years. Not one have I heard yet. What did you think this means? The meek will inherit the earth. What are we going to do with that, the earth, if we're spending eternity in heaven? How about taking it to mean that one day the meek will get the earth as a place to live? Seems kind of straightforward, right? So make a mental note. The meek shall inherit the earth. Let's move on to another example. Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. I'll read that to you. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Notice what he says, the sufferings of this present time, not the sufferings of this present present sorry, present place, but the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits. What waits? The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. There's just a tiny handful of New Testament references to us being adopted as sons of God, and none of them, interestingly, are past tense. Most of them simply guarantee it to those of us who are united to God, but they don't say when it happens or precisely what is involved. Romans 8, the part that I've just read, spells it out more fully than anywhere else. We eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. We were saved. We became children of God in the hope of something happening. Not in the hope that we would get to heaven. That doesn't even get mentioned here. We were saved in the hope of the adoption, which is the same as the redemption of our bodies. And what's more, it's not just about us. Our redemption is just part of all of creation being set free from bondage. Let me spell it out. We're not supposed to escape the physical world and go to heaven. The physical world itself with us as a part of it, is going to be made perfect, redeemed. Now you might be thinking, you might not be, but you might be thinking, these are just isolated texts, few in number and sufficiently unclear that there might be some other legitimate interpretation of them. But isolated from what? Isolated from the majority of passages that say something about eternal life? I don't think so. These are the texts that talk about our eternal state. Remember how many texts you were able to find that talk about us, that explicitly talk about us going to a place called heaven? Zero. And few in number compared to what? Zero? Please don't mishear me. I'm not trying to be cocky or arrogant. I'm not trying to crow over someone's crushed theology. I want reform. I don't want to tell anyone out there that their theology is appalling and that mine is better and that is that I win. I want you to see, if your theology fits a description of the view that I'm trying to tear down, if your view of our future is all about heaven and going there when you die and living there forever, if that's your theology, I want you to see that it fails to present the full biblical vision of God's victory. It's a pale reflection, a consolation prize that doesn't even get close to the life-affirming, creation-affirming vision of Scripture. I want you to see that you've settled for second best, and I want you to gain a greater appreciation of what Christ has made possible. Namely, the restoration of all of creation, the resurrection of, that, of the dead, and our eternal enjoyment 
of the very good, tangible, physical creation that God will give to us. And that's it. One final comment or group of comments on the question of the intermediate state. You might have noticed that I have neither affirmed nor denied the view that there is a temporary intermediate state of bliss in heaven or paradise or something prior to the creation, prior to the creation, prior to the resurrection. I have intentionally avoided this because I've been trying to focus on the issue of overlooking the resurrection and the renewal of creation and focusing on the false doctrine of eternity in heaven. But the title of this episode is actually more ambitious, isn't it? Partly to grab your attention and partly because it reflects what I actually think about that heavenly state of bliss. The episode is called Imagine There's No Heaven. This is a major issue all on its own, namely the issue of the intermediate state. I'm going to cover this in more depth another time. For now, I'm not even going to tell you what I think about it because that would distract. If you disagreed with me, that might put you off from agreeing with me on the substantial issues raised in this episode. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to distract you. So, the fact that the Bible says nothing directly about us going to heaven is significant when addressing that issue. But there's much more to be said about it, and I promise that I will get myself into trouble in the future by going to that subject in another episode sometime later down the track. But for now, that's all I want to leave you with. that's just about all we've got time for today, or all that I've got time for. I say we, but really it's just me thus far, which brings me to my next point, which is one of a couple of things I want to cover before I finish for the day. It is just me at the moment. I admit I'm the one who makes the website, posts the articles, posts on the blog, and appears in these podcast episodes, but it doesn't have to be that way. If you think that this is something you might like to get involved in, maybe you think it's something you'd be good at, drop me a line if you think that posting articles on the website, posting blog entries, maybe even uh, co-hosting the occasional podcast episode is something you'd be interested in. Please get in touch with me, info at beretta-online.com. Let me know. I'd be very keen to hear from you. I'm still on the lookout. I'm slighted by the fact that no one has showed any interest yet um, so yeah, please do that. Uh, also, what else was I going to say? What else was I going to say? There was something else. Hang on, let me press pause while I figure it out. Oh yeah, I remember now. If you're someone who listens to this uh, podcast via the iTunes store, which is probably the best way to do it, uh, don't forget there is a website as well, www.beretta-online.com. You can go there and check out all the articles that are up at the web- website, or you can click on blog and go through to the blog uh, and see some of the material there which isn't covered in the podcast. Uh, you'll see all kinds of things there, and you can uh, contribute to the comments as well and respond to each other and so forth. So do check that out. I want to see 
lots of traffic there. I think there's some stuff there that's possibly worth your time. And on that note, that's all I have for today. Do join me uh, next episode, episode 24, on a subject yet to be decided. But until then, this is Glenn Peoples wishing you all the best and signing off another episode of... Say hello to my little friend!